Week after week, we've been saying this. The inalterable fact of Easter. The inalterable fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means that everything that is sad will come untrue. Through the cross and the resurrection, God has defeated evil. And he's opened the door to new creation. And God calls us to respond to this fact, the Easter fact, by believing that it's true and joining him in his work of implementing the victory of the cross. By joining him in his work of making all the sad things come untrue. So we've been saying week after week that Christianity is for the life of the world. And we've seen How God invites us into this work. How he empowers us by his spirit to participate with him in the making of all things new. Through what? Through our jobs. Through our families. Through our efforts for justice. Last week we saw how our knowledge, how our our use of our knowledge helps us labor with God in the Easter work. And this morning, a fifth foundational critical way in which we join God in his Easter work is through beauty. Beauty. Now there are going to be three parts to my sermon this morning. First, I want us to see where beauty shows up in the Bible. Where, where do we encounter beauty in the story of God dealing with evil? The story of the Bible. Second, in these places where beauty shows up, what role does it play? That'll be the second part of the sermon. The role of beauty in the Bible. And third, how can we, the church of the incarnation, live this out? Live out this Easter work in beauty. So for the first part, let's see the three primary places in the Bible where beauty shows up. And the first is on the first page of the Bible. So if you have your Bible, find that very first page, Genesis chapter 1. The first chapter of the Bible, the first page of the Bible, is the story of creation. And it is remarkably poetic and balanced. Genesis chapter 1 is a piece of exquisite poetic literature. It's, it's the story of the whole cosmos being created over this balanced period of seven days. Now reading Genesis 1, we're struck that the one creator God is an artist. He's like a master chef. Bringing out the appropriate course at the appropriate time perfectly following the previous course and setting up the next course and at the end of each course what does he say over and over oh it's good oh that's good a few years ago I had this remarkable experience of gathering with a group of Anglican pastors in Charlottesville for this conference and at one part of the conference was this chef this at one of the great restaurants in Charlottesville who gave all of us the gift of this seven-course meal paired with craft beers. And so he would come out and he would talk about how for 20 days he had been doing something with this piece of meat and getting it ready for this night and how, and how he used this particular beer. And here's this beer so you can drink it while you eat this course. And then we go, you know, as a recovering Baptist, it was a test for me that night. <laughs> 
I was unprepared, and um, so I had to practice moderation. This is God, you know, and, and the chef would come out, you know, with this little soft billowy white hat and he would talk about his food. Just like, have any of you been to Pickford Seafood? Have any of you talked to the, the owner of it? He loves seafood like, like some people love wine. He just talks about seafood like people talk about wine. The finish of it, the start of it, it's bright on the palate, it goes down smooth and he's talking about, you know, anchovies or whatever. Here is God in Genesis 1. After each round, he says, oh, this is good. Oh, this is... And then when he gets to the last round, what does he say? Oh, the pièce de résistance, right? It is very, very good. Day after day, he looks at what he's made. And he delights in it. Now, now what is this goodness that God pronounces seven times in Genesis 1? Is it ethical goodness? Moral goodness? Or is it aesthetic goodness? Is he commenting on the orderliness of creation or on the loveliness? Both. Both. Don't have time to go into it this morning. But in the Old Testament, the word good and the word beautiful are often sliding into each other. So that in God, there is no sharp distinction between beauty and morality. After all, isn't injustice ugly? Yeah, see, even in our language, we, we, we slide these into each other. Now, what's going on here? You see, there is nothing God does that does not send off sparks of beauty. That doesn't call our attention to his redeeming and loving presence. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He was a, several centuries ago a philosopher and theologian and pastor. He said, for as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is infinitely the most beautiful see in Edwards morality holiness beauty you can't separate these things and all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory God is the foundation and the fountain of all beauty and being you see, something of the lovely, the loving goodness of God shines through every moment of beauty. All beauty is an echo of the glory of God. It's His voice we hear echoing off the crags, murmuring in the sunset. It is His power we feel in the crashing of the waves and the roar of the lion. It's His beauty we see reflected in the faces that turn our heads. So the first place we see beauty in the Bible is on the very first page of the Bible in creation. Now for the second place, turn to Exodus chapter 24. That's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 24. This chapter gives the account of Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel ascending a mountain because God called them into a meeting. He said, I got to meet with you. I want you to climb up this mountain to meet with me. There's this remarkable moment when they arrive at the top of this mountain to meet with God. They suddenly see God. And listen to verse 10. Notice verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Like the very heaven for clearness. 
Now, this is just one example of something that happens several times in the Bible. When throughout the Bible, there is this clear and pervasive connection between the presence of God and get this extraordinary visual beauty. Visual beauty. Whenever God descends into creation, he continues to express the mystery of love through experiences of physical, visible beauty. And this beauty is is based on the actual and continuing presence of God as the fundamental shape of reality. So we see beauty in creation. Whenever God, whenever there's an epiphany, whenever people see God, there's this presence of beauty. So we see beauty in creation, in God's presence. And third in the Bible, beauty frequently shows up in places of worship. Places of worship. Turn a few pages to the right. We're in Genesis. We're in Exodus 24. Now turn to Exodus 30, chapter 31. We heard this read. Jillian read this to us just a few minutes ago. It's the first time in the Bible when God's spirit falls on someone for a task. And what is the task? Why does God's spirit fill Bezalel and Ohiliab? Why Why does God give them his spirit? Well, it's because... Or it's so that they will make art. This is remarkable. Think about this. The first time God's spirit fills someone for a task is for artists. To do what? To devise artistic designs. To furnish the tabernacle. This very fancy tent. Not frugal. Not prudent. Extravagant. Like the Alps. Like a flower. Like the Hubble telescope tells us the cosmos is. Like powerful microscopes tell us. You, you see, from big to small, God has made this place beautiful. And so he gets them to make this fancy tent. What's going to happen in this tent? Israel is going to worship. They're going to meet with God. Bezalel seems to have been filled by the Spirit to be a craftsman. And Oholiab to be an interior decorator. Is that what you think of when you think of full of the Spirit? Do you see great interior decorators and does it come to your mind filled with the Spirit? That's the first way full of the Spirit occurs in the Bible. Now it's clearly very important to God that this be a beautiful space. Because he says, there I will meet with you. Now go back to chapter 20. Back in chapter 20 of Exodus, God had already given Israel the Ten Commandments. And in the second commandment, he says, don't make false images. And many people use this to push back against art in worship. To push back against sculpture and painting, the visual arts. But what what you need to see is that... The second commandment pushing against this stuff occurred in chapter 20. God did not forget. This is not a confusion of the literature. In other words, if you interpret the second commandment as a push against visual beauty, then maybe you're misreading the second commandment. 
In, in actuality, what's going on in the second commandment is that it's pushing against false worship. Not the attempt to portray artistic truth in worship. Not the attempt to portray religious truth in the form of images. The line, in, the line that's being drawn in the second commandment is between God and idols, not God and images. Again, this is just, so Exodus chapter um, 31, this is just one example Throughout scripture, the visual experience of God's people in worship was supposed to accompany language, words, instruction. Visual beauty throughout the Bible is supposed to be a part of the worship of God's people as an accompaniment to words. The liturgical experience in the tabernacle and then in the temple, it gets ramped up even more, always had a powerful aesthetic dimension. Because the God of Israel is known to be present in an environment of physical, visible loveliness. So beauty shows up in the Bible in God's activity, in God's presence, and in God's worship. Clearly Beauty is important to the biblical story, to the biblical account of reality. Why? Why? In other words, what role does beauty play? That it keeps showing up at these really incredible moments. What's it doing in these moments? Well, that's the second part of the sermon. I'm going to point out three ways beauty functions in the Bible. Three functions of beauty. Three roles of beauty. First of all, play. P-L-A-Y. Turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. It's the third creation account of Scripture. The first one is Genesis 1. The second one is Genesis 2. The third one is Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, chapter 12, chapter 8, verses 12 through 31, is an account of creation told from the perspective of Lady Wisdom. Let's pick up in verse 27. When he, talking about God, established the heavens, I was there. It's talking about Lady Wisdom. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he, made from the, when he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Now pay close attention to what comes next. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. God delighted in the fact that he created with wisdom. But get this next part. Not only did God delight in me, I was his delight. But here I was doing what? Rejoicing before him. Rejoicing in his inhabited world. Delighting in the children of man. It's important to see that here, beauty leads to play. 
As God is making these vast, infinite things, Lady Wisdom, the personification of wisdom, is dancing in front of God. That's the response. The response to this beauty is play. Not somber holiness. Not bowing down in reverential silence. But the playing of dance. In response to the creator and the creator's beautiful creation, Lady Wisdom is a joyful, playful, dancing child. One of the critical functions of art is that it brings the notion of play back into the center of our lives where it belongs. And this is just one of the places in the Bible where we see the playful function of beauty. Another one of my favorite places is Job 38, where we hear that the morning stars sang together at creation and the sea monsters played in the oceans. Perhaps humans are meant to see their lives as more of a playtime, a dance. If we were to mimic Lady Wisdom, we would certainly be more productive in our work if we brought a playful spirit into it. Henri Matisse, in his monumental cutouts, do you know Matisse? He ends his brilliant artistic career that spanned 50 years. He ends it. Having had this brutal surgery, but giving a new lease on life with scissors cutting out colorful pieces of construction paper. And he did his greatest work. It's called the Matisse Cutouts. They started small and they ended huge. What was he doing? He was encoding the joy that lies deep down in the heart of all things. So one of the roles of beauty in the Bible is play. A second role of beauty is contemplation. Contemplation. Do you remember the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This, at the beginning, he's describing the beauty of creation. And then what happens in the second half of the psalm? Suddenly, he's contemplating, he's meditating on God's law. Oh Lord, he's meditating on how beautiful the law is. His, his, his observation of the beauty of creation leads him into a reflective state on God's word. And then there's Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then what does it say? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of? Do you see the shift from beauty to reflection to contemplation? Do you see what's going on here? Beauty, God's artistry draws out of us deep reflection. The best art always does. I'll never forget walking through St. Peter's in London. I go around this massive pillar and I look and there's these huge, I don't know, 10 by 12 paintings, Sergei Chepik's paintings. I've used them quite frequently here of Christ and his resurrection, his crucifixion, his nativity, his ministry. And I'm struck silent, which is remarkable. <laughs> it just called me up. It just stopped me in my tracks. This is one of the reasons that so many people find art so important in their lives. Because it appeals to the contemplative side of us. Something that is little appealed to in our hurried, harried culture. We're creatures of inner depths. 
And art opens up the effective spaces in which meditation and prayer naturally come to expression. We see it in the psalmist. Look, if you don't nurture the contemplative side, your prayer, your, uh, your meditation on God will be thin. We have to open these spaces up inside of ourselves. We have to develop these muscles. Contemplation is central to what it means to be human. It's central to Christianity. It's at the root of biblical spirituality. And it remains central in the Christian tradition until the Protestant Reformation. Look, I grew up where art was kicked out of the church. We lived in beautiful homes and worshipped in ugly buildings. Why can we make beautiful homes as Protestants? But not make beautiful buildings. Why can we hang art on the walls of our homes. And worship in gyms. And concrete square rectangles. There's a historical reason for this. It's deep in the roots of Protestant Reformation. Don't have time to go into all of it. But Calvin especially was resisting the superstitious element of medieval Catholicism. And he locked the doors of the church during the week. Which is, by the way, one of the key reasons Catholic churches are open all week and Protestant churches aren't. There's this, there's this historical reason for it. If Calvin was reforming in our day, we are not people who struggle with image worship. We are people who struggle with image shallowness. He would do a different reformation today. You know the old story about the lady who always cut the end off the roast? And her husband said, why don't you cut the end off the roast? She said, I don't know, my mom did. So she asked her mom, I don't know, my mom did. So she asked her grandma, and her grandma said, my pot was too small. (laughs) Great idea for grandma, terrible idea for her grandchild. We are grand, grand, grandchildren of the Reformation. We live in a different moment. We've got to overcome the idols that we, we've got to stop fighting about idols that aren't in our culture. Now, beauty, whether in the natural order or within human creation, is sometimes so powerful that it evokes our deepest feelings of awe and wonder and gratitude and reverence. Have you ever been speechless as you held a newborn? As you drove through the Blue Ridge Parkway? As you watched a remarkable feat of athletics? Beauty calls us out of ourselves and appeals to feelings deep within us. And this is really important because the cultivation of wonder is critical for living well. One of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, puts it this way. Without wonder, we approach life as a self-help project. We employ techniques. We analyze gifts and potentialities. We set goals and assess progress. But spiritual formation in these moments gets reduced to cosmetics. Without wonder, the motivational energies for living well get dominated by anxiety and guilt. 
Anxiety and guilt restrict. They close us in on ourselves. They isolate us in feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness. They reduce us to ourselves at our worst. Instead of being formed by the spirit that hovered over the waters and raised Jesus from the dead, when we lose the ability to wonder, we are malformed into lives of workaholism and athleticism. All right. In the Bible, we see that beauty leads us to play and it leads us to contemplate. A third role of beauty in the Bible is vision. Vision. Beauty, visual art, helps us see better. Our gospel reading, if you have your Bible, find Mark chapter 14. This, this story of, of Mary anointing Jesus with an alabaster flask of perfumed ointment. Here's this woman. She broke all the social rules to get to Jesus in this small room full of his male disciples. You think it's hard to enter into a room dominated by men as the only woman today? Can you imagine in a far more patriarchal culture? She barges in. She brings a jar she's been saving for her wedding. It's so valuable, so exquisite, so beautiful and precious. It costs one year's worth of wages. We understand that. Beautiful things today are expensive. It's always that way. The wealthy build their houses with the best views. Beauty has always come at a price. So she barges in. She breaks the jar and pours its expensive perfumed oil upon Jesus' feet. Judas, the other disciples, how do they react? What a waste. Right? They're, they're analyzing the economics of it. If you analyze the economics of art, it's always wasteful. Art requires patronage because it can never pay itself That's just the wrong way to evaluate artistic beauty. And that's the disciples, right? Well, wait a minute. We could have sold this. We could have served the poor. I mean, just translate. Why why do we have to have a beautiful building? Aren't there poor people in this city? Can't you just slide the the conversation into so many conversations churches have about the expense of beauty? The disciples, these men, (laughs) they're upset about the budget. But not only the budget, they're also upset about sex, about sexuality. You see, the only time that particular aroma of perfume wafts into the air is on a wedding night. Mary is doing what a woman in that culture was allowed to do only on her wedding day. She is anointing her bridegroom. See, they're upset about far more than economics. How dare she treat him as if he can relate to her in such an intimate way? Can you see them sneering? Can you see them feeling like this is an inappropriate thing to be done? Everyone knew what that aroma signified. It's funny, John, when he writes his gospel, 50 years after this event, of all the gospel writers, he alone comments on the smell that filled the room. But what does Jesus say 
in their economic, sexual rebuke. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? And notice Mark 14, verse 6. She has done not an economic thing. That's not what justifies what she's done. She has done a beautiful thing. And that's the justification. She has done a beautiful thing to me. That's how he analyzes it. It's beauty that she's done to me. Look, beauty is a moral category. Every bit as much as keeping your word. Beauty matters to God like morality matters to God. And then he says in verse 9, unbelievable, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. He slides this act of beauty into the gospel. Mary's oil, do you know, was the only thing Jesus wore to his crucifixion. Do you realize that? They stripped him of everything else, but they couldn't strip him of that. Can you smell blood mixed with perfume? At the crucifixion. You see, there are some truths better expressed in art than in words. The thick, granite-headed disciples who could not get it, she got it. And she said it in an act of visceral beauty. Incense. What I'm saying is that art, beauty is a window. Beauty Art helps us see better. Look at Mary here in Mark chapter 14. And you see that beauty, that art at its best, not only draws attention to the way things are in their good but broken state, but also to the way things are meant to be. And by God's grace, the way things will be one day. The smell of life will outlive the decay of death in Jesus' body. When the earth one day is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Good art done well points the way to the new world God intends to make. To the world already seen in advance of the crucifixion in the anointing of Jesus. A world whose charter of beauty and justice and freedom was won on the cross. The world we live in is in bad shape, but it will be healed. Jesus was facing torture and murder, but he will rise again. Remember, the story of the Bible is the story of a good creator longing to put the world back into the good order for which it was designed. A God who completes what he's begun. A God who comes to the rescue of those who have lost their way. Like Mary's anointing of Jesus... There is coming a day when the one creator God will take all of the extravagant, transient, ephemeral beauties of this world and fold them into the gospel. And fold them into the beauty of the life that is to come. In the same way that her perfume went through his crucifixion into his resurrection. In the same way all of our creations of beauty done well will go through the death of this world into the resurrection of the new world. Somehow it will be there. 
You think the Rocky Mountains are beautiful now. Wait until they're unleashed. And you think Mozart is beautiful now. Wait until it is unleashed. And you think Anita's flowers capture it now. Just wait until we see them hanging in our homes in the new heavens and new earth. Like that perfume, it will pass through. It will be caught up. That is the gospel. Beauty has to find a place in our gospel account. We live between the victory achieved on the cross and the ultimate renewal of all things. But we, and we live here with imaginations that have been shrunken and starved through the long winter of secularism. So we need art, visual art. We need it to deliver our imaginations into a deeper and wiser hope. A hope in the creator and redeemer whose all-conquering love will one day transform all things into the new heavens and new earth. Art rekindles our imagination to what is really real. We need the kinds of songs and paintings and film and sculpture and dance and poetry that are disciplined and matured and created out of wise imagination. Artistic creations that cause us to recognize God's glory. That stop us in our tracks so that we can hear the faint echo of his voice. We need help to yearn toward the day when the world will be full of the glory of God like water covers the sea. All of this to say, beauty is a door to the gospel. So the place of art in the Bible is play, contemplation, and vision. Now for the last couple of minutes, I'm going to point out how our church can live in front of all of this. Faithful. To this biblical theology of the visual arts. First of all, we must recover the ability. We've got to continually work to recover the ability to wander. To create. Do you remember how much you enjoyed creating as a child? Have you ever seen a child sent on an errand that gets lost? And wonder? Have you lost that ability? Have you lost that that sense of joy? If you have, rediscover it. And may we be a church that helps one another rediscover it. C.S. Lewis wrote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. One of the greatest things we can do as individuals and as a church is to behold It might be the most frequent command in the Bible. Behold. Stop. Shut up. Develop the capacity to stand in awe. To behold our God. To stop analyzing. Do you know how a child receives a tree? By just standing in front of it. Not by analyzing its geometry, its, its biology, its chemistry, its usefulness. Have you, that's what we've got to recover. It's this remarkable. We've got to cultivate the ability to be astonished. To stop what we're doing. To stand still, open-eyed, open-handed. Ready to take in what is more and other. Wonder, it's this act of turning towards something and receiving it in love and affirmation. This is part of what our amazing arts council does in our lives. You help us become aware of the immensity of beauty. Second, a second way our church 
And you're going to think I fabricated this. I did not. Next week, we're, we're, we're turning in cards, if we haven't turned them yet, about giving money to make this building beautiful. I didn't set that up, I promise. Everything, I haven't, everything I'm about to say was not planned, all right? Before I tried to, I, I want us as a church to live faithful to what God's saying to us. And we have a really good concrete thing right in front of us, all right? Most of you know we're in the midst of a building campaign, a capital campaign, to raise the money it'll take to finish the remain, to renovate the remainder of our building. Now, we purchased this building three years ago. It was an old auto parts store. We completely gutted it. The only thing left, the, we replaced the floor, the walls, and we replaced the ceiling and the roof. Um, I think that wall right there and these side walls that have now been covered up are the only thing left. And to pay for this project, we had a three-year capital campaign. Some of you were here then, about half of you. We committed our money over a three-year period to pay for the work. After two years, it was fully paid for. So we told everybody, stop giving. Whatever you've got left that you promised, it's back in your hand. Because we finished. By God's grace, it was all paid for ahead of time. Now, we're going to do this again. And if God is gracious, you'll get a third of your money back. (laughs) Now, why are we going to do this again? For safety? Michelle Coot broke her elbow on the front. You know, opening that front door is hard. It slammed, broke her elbow. Kids play in a public parking lot after the service. We're going to make an area over here with a fence. Function is another reason we're doing this. We're going to do some work in these rooms back here so that our children's ministry can go to a whole nother level. We're going to push that wall out a little bit so that we can have some more chairs. You know, when our college students are here, Um, before we planted the church of the Lamb, we were maxed out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We're going to add just a few more. Um, And a third reason we're doing it is beauty. Beauty. As we've seen this morning, beauty matters to God. Obviously, we can abuse this line of thought. Obviously, there are limits and dangers, but we're not facing those, I promise. Over a 12-month period that we're currently in, our church will have given away $100,000 to missions out of a $287,000 budget. Not 100 out of it, but part of it we give to missions and then others has been given. That's remarkable. Look, our priorities are straight. We're, we're, we're not neglecting missions for the sake of beauty. But woe to the church that neglects beauty for the sake of mission. Aren't you glad God didn't neglect beauty in his mission to save your soul? Beauty matters to God. And it matters to God that we meet him in a place of beauty. That's clear all through the Bible. In the same way that many of you make a nursery beautiful to meet your newborn. God wants us to meet him in beautiful places. The fact that you care about beauty doesn't mean that you're vain or materialistic. It means that you're a child of God. It means that you're made in the image of God. For most Protestants, visual art supports preaching. But art stops us in our tracks. It does more than just become secondary to the word. Art can be its own independent witness to the word. A church building is not only for instruction. We're not only heads walking around on sticks. We have bellies 
People long to stand transfixed before an image of power and beauty to watch a sunlit mountain range emerge from the rain clouds to sit quietly in prayer. The Lord is to be heard and seen in our church buildings. He is to be loved in contemplation and thought. Let's make this building a place that kindles affection and awe. Our society is thirsty for wordless drinks of beauty. The church holds in its hand the treasure of the gospel. The world transforming story of God's creative and redemptive work in Christ through the power of the spirit. And the truth and the beauty of the gospel needs words and images to be truly seen and understood. So as you're praying this week about how much you're going to give to this building... As you're praying this week about how much you're going to pledge, I hope that you give sacrificially for beauty's sake. We need it. There's more to it, but that's the subject of this morning. We need it. We can do something amazing with this building. We already have. Let's finish it. Let's pray.